All right, welcome back to the Project 33 podcast. This one's going to be our December highlights of our best insights all about B2B marketing, B2B content, founder branding, and LinkedIn. And in today's podcast, we're going to cover the topics of why personal branding matters, why B2B marketing takes month, months to deliver results, why we put all of our IP out there, why content is networking at scale. We'll talk about self-checkout for a $100,000 ACV software product, um, how newsletters are ruining the reputations of many B2B companies, why ChatGPT will not take over copywriting, five reasons why video is superior, why we started doing live events, and lastly, what I would do as a new head of marketing if I was hired tomorrow. I hope you like it. I hope you enjoy it. If you have any feedback, any thoughts, feel free to send me a message on LinkedIn. And now, enjoy. One thing that people say, and I do agree with it, is everyone has a personal brand, whether you do personal branding or not. And your personal brand is your reputation. What do people think about you and say about you when you're not in the room? Oh, Berat is such a trustworthy person. Oh, he's so interesting. Oh, he's so smart. Oh, he's so thoughtful. Oh, he's kind of annoying. He always talks about TikTok, these things. He's hardworking. He's lazy. Like that's your reputation and that's your personal brand. So everyone has a personal brand. So when I think about personal branding, the activity, it's kind of like networking. Right. So you go to a networking event in person, 20, 30 people, and you talk to people and you like introduce yourself. You're like, I'm Barrett, you know, I do this. I, you know, I have a company, blah, blah, blah. And you can either box yourself in and pretend that you're this robot that just, you know, does design. And that's your whole life. And that's the only thing you talk about. And maybe some people are interested in that. But generally, when you do that in person, people are like, that's kind of fake a little bit. I don't feel like I know this person. This is just like some some like stream of thought. And the only thing he ever talks about is design. It's like, is that all he is? You know, I don't know anything about you. Like, do you have kids? Are you married? Where do you live? You know, what, what are your hobbies? Are you interested? And that's how we, by the way, evaluate whether someone's trustworthy. We look at them and we hear them talk and we see their facial expressions and we evaluate kind of the context of their life and how it relates to us, right? Some people, when you tell them I'm married for five years, they immediately think about you differently because they're married. You know, if you tell them that you have kids, if you tell them you live in Berlin and you love the city and, and your favorite author is, you know, Nassim Taleb, you know, some people are like, oh, I love Nassim Taleb. And they immediately have some connection with you. And so what people usually do naturally when they go to a networking event, is like they don't only talk about their professional stuff. You know, they introduce themselves. They're like, I'm married, you know, I'm married, we live here. Oh, I just got into wine and it's so fascinating. We went to this trip to California and we did this wine tasting and it was, you know, so enriching. And then the other person like, oh, I love wine too. Like, what's your favorite wine? And then you eventually get to the professional thing and you're like, so what do you do for work? Oh, well, I run this company. And then, then it's on another level, right? Because you have some context, you know the person. They're more than just like this persona. And that's, to me, what personal branding is when it comes to content. So you can either just 
box yourself in and be this like design persona that only ever talks about design. And when someone asks, who's this person? They're like, I don't know. He just talks about design all day. And so personal branding just means to incorporate these things into your content that you would naturally do when you meet someone at a conference or at a networking event. We share a little bit about your personal life. You share a little bit about your hobbies. You, you talk about being married and what you're learning there. You talk about living in Berlin and what it's like and how it's informed, you know, how you think about different things. And so what it does, I think, is one, it makes you more personable, it makes you more likable, you're more relatable. It, again, it gives more surface area because now instead of just appealing to people who are design obsessed, and just want to learn about design all day, the people who are also into wine or also into reading Nassim Taleb or are also living in Berlin or are also married with one kid, that's something I can relate to this person. I like this guy. And so it gives you more surface area. It builds trust with people because, again, that's how we evaluate whether someone is trustworthy by getting this context. And so I think that's the personal aspect, and that's what we try to incorporate when we create content for customers. Chapter two, why B2B marketing takes months to deliver results. People say this thing that it takes a couple quarters for a marketing campaign to start showing results, right? And especially when you're a marketer, that's a very easy and self-serving thing to say because it gives you a little bit more time. But obviously all the other people, they want to see these results fast and, and they don't want to hear that they need to wait a couple more quarters before this starts showing. So wanted to talk about why it actually takes time. And the first one is marketing cycles. We talked about that before. They're sales cycles. So people understand that from the moment that someone raises their hand and says, I want to talk to sales, to the moment that you get a final decision, they sign the contract or they say, no, this is not working. It takes time, right? And especially in B2B, this can be six months of having multiple conversations. They're talking to their stakeholders. You know, you have a meeting, you discuss the pricing, they go back, contract negotiation, all of that takes time. Now, the marketing cycle is what happens before that. And so it also takes time from the moment that someone might first hear about you. They see your first LinkedIn video, they read your first blog post, they hear you mentioned the first time in a conversation with a colleague, they see your first ad, from that moment to the moment that they raise their hand and say, I want to talk to sales, it takes time too, right? Because they need to understand your product. They need to understand what you do. They need to understand how you do it. They need to recognize the problem that you solve in their own business. This problem needs to start become big enough because maybe it's not big enough in the beginning. They need to compare you to competitors because they do that before they raise their hand and talk to your sales. They're going to talk with some of their colleagues to see what they've heard about you, whether they've worked with you, what they think about you. Again, they're going to do that before they raise their hand and say they want to talk to sales because they want to come to the sales conversations prepared, right? They want to have good questions. They want to be able to say, well, but your competitor's charging this. You know, what about that? Or my colleague said this about you guys. What do you have to say about that, right? So all of this 
discovery and research. And they need to build trust in you, right? Before they say, okay, like let's actually explore whether their solution will work in our specific business. They need to actually start seeing you as an expert because otherwise there's no point in having a sales conversations with you guys if they don't think you guys are experts. Well, that takes time. That takes multiple touch points and pieces of content for them to start realizing that you actually know what you're talking about, right? So that's the marketing cycle. So this period takes time, you know, they might be already still in a contract uh, with another person, you know, they might uh, not have the budget yet available, and they need to wait to the next year until they have that budget available. So all of these things happen before the sales cycle, they happen before someone raises their hand and says, I want to talk to sales. And again, if you're in B2B and you have a really complex product that's hard to understand, that does a lot of things, that is applicable to many situations, you work with a lot of industries, this can take months. So that's number one. Number two, why it takes a couple of quarters to show results is that iteration, right? This marketing cycle takes time once you have messages that resonate with your customers, once you know how to communicate what you do and what the benefits are and know how to communicate your expertise. But before that, depending on where you are, you might first need to do iteration before you even get to that point, right? You need to actually learn how to communicate what you do. You need to learn how to communicate what the benefits of your solution are. You need to learn how to frame the problem that you solve in a way that your customers actually recognize that. You need to learn how to share your expertise in a way that your prospects say, okay, this person really knows what they're doing, right? And so you need to figure out your message. You need to figure out your taglines. You need to figure out your headlines. You need to figure out your presentation. You need to, you know, figure out your topics and how you talk about them. And that, that takes time of iteration, right? No one knows when they first start creating content, you know, the right, perfect thing to say. And so that's another period of time, which might take a couple of weeks. It might take a couple of months, depending on, you know, where you are in that journey with how many customers you've already talked to, how long you've been doing this thing that you've been doing, whether it's a new company or you've been in business for five years, right? There's a lot of different inputs to that. So that's why marketers say in B2B, it takes, you know, some quarters for results to show up. You need to iterate, you need to learn how to communicate, and then two, there's marketing cycles. It takes time from someone to first hearing about you to raising their hand and saying, I want to talk to sales. Chapter three, content is networking at scale. When I dropped out of college and I started documenting, the reason why I did that was really just because I thought that wherever I end up, whether I start a business or you know, go to, you know, become an actor or, you know, whatever it is that I end up wanting to do. If I document the step-by-step -step thing that I went through to get there, some people can take something from that and get inspired and learn something from it. That was the thing why I decided to do it. As I started doing it, I realized that it actually enabled me and accelerated my search of finding something and building something because one there's a couple of ways to think about it i think one way is just to think about networking right if you don't know what you want to do 
and you don't know anyone, it's really hard. Like, how do you find that out? And so one thing that you can just start doing is to network with people, meet friends, talk to people, present what your thoughts are, discuss, debate, make connections, help them in some way. And then over time, you're doing two things. One, you're getting new inputs. You know, some people telling you, oh, I have this agency and oh, I have this e-commerce thing and oh, I'm helping people do that. And it just gives you inspirations where you're like, oh, I could see myself doing that, that you might have otherwise never discovered if you hadn't had met these people and talked with them. And two, you now have supporters and a network so that once you run into that first thing where someone tells you, oh, yeah, I'm like doing pottery. And you're like, oh, pottery sounds fun. I should try that. You now have people that you can reach out to ask for help or to say, hey, I built this thing. Would you be interested in using it? So you now have it's much easier to start. And so the way that I think about content is just that, but online and at scale. Right, because what you do at a networking event is there's 20 or 30 or 100 people and you go to meet those people and you introduce yourself and you tell them who you are and what you do and what you're learning, what you're up to. And they tell you what who they are and what they do and what they're up to. And then there might be a, a match, right? Where you're, oh, you're working on the same thing or, oh, you're, you know, maybe I can help you or maybe you can help me or maybe you could use the thing that I'm building. And that's what content does. When you just talk about what you're doing and what you're up to and what you're thinking about and what you're building and what you're experimenting with, most people won't care. And some people will be like, oh, there's a match. That's what I'm working on. That's what I need. How about you help me with? And that's how, you know, Project 33 started. I didn't create videos because I was like, this is the path and then I'm going to start. I just created videos because I liked it. And then two people saw it and were like, I can use this for my business. That never occurred to me that a business owner would want to create videos on LinkedIn, right? And so then they reached out to me and they said, hey, can you do this? I'll pay you money. And I was like, oh, damn, okay, I'll do that, you know? And so it's just networking at scale. And I think, especially in the beginning, what I would say is just don't niche yourself down. I think that's one of those advices that people tell people when they talk about content, like pick a niche and then talk about that and focus. I would, again, do the opposite and be like, talk about whatever you are interested in, you know, and if there's no cohesion, that's fine. That's what I did, right? I was just like, I'm meeting this person. I'm doing that. I'm traveling to New York. I'm going to drop out. Here's my LinkedIn videos. Here's what I'm learning from Instagram. Just anything, because then you run more experiments in a sense, because most of the things People are not interested in most of the things you do, people won't find value in. So if you like sit down as a college student or whatever, and you're like, I'm going to talk about investment advice. It's like, you don't know shit about investment advice. And you don't know whether that's the thing you're really interested in. And so you cut yourself short, rather, you should talk about what you think about investing and your hobbies and football and this and Twitch and whatever you want to talk about gives, gives more area, surface area for someone to see something that they resonate with or that might help them. That's really how I thought about content. That's how I still think about content, even with Project 33, right? When we produce videos for these founders and business owners and executives, it's just to scale networking. It's to get their face out there, showcase what they know, showcase their expertise, build trust with people, build rapport with people, start new relationships that they can then take offline and have a Zoom call or follow up with that will benefit their business and maybe other parts of their life. Chapter four, self-checkout for a $100,000 ACV software product. 
So I saw this in a Chris Walker post the other day, and I think it's a really interesting thought experiment that I wanted to share. A lot of people say that B2B needs to learn from B2C. And one of the interesting things that where B2C is different from B2B is self-checkout. For most B2C businesses, e-commerce, retail, you could go to someone's website, decide what you want, and check out yourself and pay, put in your credit card information, and you just purchased. That's not how B2B works. In B2B, you book a call with a salesperson, and you discuss, and you debate, and you have questions, and you create, get a proposal, and they create a contract, and you negotiate, and you go back and forth, and eventually you sign a contract. That's how purchasing happens in B2B. And so the thought experiment is, if you're a B2B company, pretend your buyers could go to your website and self-check out your 100K ARR enterprise software tool. Put in their credit card information, $100,000 get billed off their credit card. Could they do that? And obviously the answer for most B2B companies is no, of course not. And so the question is why not, right? The answer is, missing information, right? They want to know all these things about how it works and what it does and how it integrates and the features and the processes and who needs to do that and who will do that and will you offer consulting and will you hold our hand and, you know, what's the support like and, you know, what if we change this process? How will this, you know, change integrating that thing, right? And so they have all these questions, all this missing information, that's number one, just on the product and the solution, how it works with them. And then the second one is just the trust part, right? Like, are you actually legitimate? Do you know what you're doing? Is this real? Is this a real company that we're working with? Have you done this before? Have you done case studies? You know, have you successfully implemented the software into other companies that are similar to us, right? All of these are questions and missing information. And so what happens in a B2B uh, environment is that they book a sales call. And then on these sales calls, these exact questions and concerns and open questions are being debated. Can you show me some case studies? Can you explain how this works? What about this feature, right? That's what happens on a sales call. And that's partly why purchasing in B2B takes so much time, right? Because there's all this information that needs to be unearthed and discussed and debated and understood which takes multiple calls, which then the company needs to go back. They need to debate it internally with their team, right? They need to debate, do we have the budget? How do we fit it into our next quarter? Whatever the things are, then they come back to you with additional questions. So it's all an information problem. And so once you start thinking about what if someone could just put in their credit card information for our 50K, 100K ARR, service, consulting services, software product, you start thinking about what pieces of information you need to put publicly available on your website, on your socials, into your marketing channels, into your newsletter, so that just as in B2C, someone can just look at the website, read up the product description, you know, read up some customer reviews, you know, look you up you know, on Google real quick, make sure that you're real and then put on the credit card and buy that t-shirt on your website, right? You'll never fully get there in B2B 
You never fully get to the point where someone will actually put in their credit card and actually pay you $100,000 without ever speaking to you. That's not going to happen. But you can reduce the amount of time that people need to spend with your salespeople. Because maybe instead of only finding 10% of that information on your website, and then having to get 90% of the remaining information from talking one-on-one with your salesperson, maybe you can get to the point where there's 50% of that information on your website or 60%, and then only the remaining 50 or 40% is what they need to get from your salesperson. What that's going to do is, one, you need fewer salespeople. Each salesperson needs to spend less time per prospect. And the sales cycle will be shorter because people can do a lot of this research problem on their own at 6 p.m. when they're commuting home, you know, on the weekend when they want to read up like a little blog post or part of your website, when they're talking to their colleague and that colleague has a question, instead of them now having to wait for the next call, they can just go to your website and answer that question, right? So all of this kind of debating and discussion and figuring out gets condensed. And so... I think it's a very useful thought experiment for B2B companies to try to figure out how they can get closer to B2C companies where people can do self-checkout on their website. Chapter five, how newsletters are ruining B2B companies' reputation. So I see this, unfortunately, a lot. And I think a lot of people who have an email inbox have seen this a lot too, that you often get these email newsletters from companies that you've never heard of, you don't know, you've never talked to them. And here they are in your email inbox, usually with something promotional, offering you some discount or inviting you to some webinar about a topic that you don't really care about, or you just don't know these people. And so what happened there is that someone in that company, and usually B2B companies, decided that it's a good idea to have an email newsletter And so they want to start this initiative on an often email newsletter, but they don't have an audience, right? They don't have any contact list to send this email newsletter to. And that's really uncomfortable, especially when you then, you know, maybe talk to the leadership and they say, why should we be sending out this email newsletter when we have three people we can send it to? And what the answer should be is that, that this is a long-term play. And that the goal is to create an asset and to build out this audience and to write a newsletter and to learn how to write a newsletter that adds value to our prospects so that more and more people over time will want to subscribe to that because they will want to hear from us. They will want to learn from us. But of course, that takes time. And so what's much easier is to just download an email list from somewhere, Zoom info or scrape some emails somewhere from random people who maybe fit your customer profile, but random people you never talk to and just blast them with your email newsletter. Because, you know, look at all that potential. Potentially, if you send it out to 10,000 emails, maybe five of these people will actually buy from us. And then immediately with my first email newsletter, you know, we'll have five new purchases. But what actually happens is that, one, no one will buy because they don't know you, they don't trust you, they don't have the problem that you're trying to solve. And, you know, it's your first email newsletter. You don't really know how to write it yet and what to write about and the topics you should write about. So your first newsletter will probably be the worst one. And so no one converts. You get 50% unsubscribes in the first email. 
And not only do people not buy from you, you now also reduced the probability that these people will ever purchase from you in the future. Because when I get an email newsletter like that, someone I never heard of, something that's not relevant to me, and it's clearly there's no effort in the email newsletter, it's just some promotional thing, I will not only not work with them, I will probably never work with them in the future. So what should you do instead? We have an email newsletter. We create email newsletters for our customers. So I don't have a problem with email newsletters. I think they're a great tool to stay top of mind with your prospects and customers. But it needs to be understood as a long-term play. You should only send your email newsletter to people who opted into it, who said that they want to receive this email newsletter. So there's a couple of ways you can do that. One, you should add like a little opt-in form to your website where you say like, hey, we send out a monthly email with tips and tricks, whatever it is, where people can enter the email and sign up. Or, and we recommend that, I did that for our prospects and customers, and we recommend that to our customers to do, send a very short email to all of the people that you've talked to before, leads, opportunities, customers, people that didn't close, right? Like the people who already had some sort of sales conversations with you, because clearly they were interested in what you do and your offer and your product. And so send them a short email and say, hey, name, by the way, we just started a new newsletter where we teach people how to do X or where we share tips and tricks on how to do X better value. Would you be interested in that? And then the people who say yes, you add to your email newsletter. And so you start out with maybe five people. You start out with maybe 50 people. You know, you don't have a massive audience and that's fine. But the goal is to then over time learn and figure out what are the topics that they care about? How can we add value in our newsletter? How, we, how can we create an email newsletter that people want to sign up for? And then over time, you can slowly grow it, either by more people signing up through your website or by people forwarding your email newsletter to their colleagues because it added value and then a colleague sign up or, and that's what we also do for ourselves. And again, we recommend to customers, tell your salespeople, and I have these sales calls, when you have a sales call and someone doesn't close for whatever reason, not the right time, not the budget, doesn't make sense. You say, okay, no problem. By the way, we have an email newsletter that we send out once a month, twice a month where we talk about our learnings when it comes to video marketing or whatever it is. Would you be interested in that? 50% of your prospects, the people who didn't close, will say, sure. And then you add them to that newsletter. And now you have basically a follow-up sequence with people who were interested in what you do at some point to stay top of mind with them, to build more trust with them, to add value to them so that six months down the road, when they you know, do have the budget when it is the right time, you're the first person who comes to mind. So that's, in my opinion, the right way to utilize an email newsletter. And a lot of companies are ruining their reputation and are not even aware of it because you don't see the cost of removing potential future customers by just blasting with, this, with something that they never opted into and don't care about. Chapter 6 why chat GPT will not take over copywriting. We actually experimented with that. Saurabh, Saurabh actually experimented with that. And I think what he basically did is he used chat GPT and he told chat GPT to write a LinkedIn post. But the input for that was the transcript of a 
conversation we had with the customer. And I think that where I see it fitting, I, I don't see it being at the point where it can create thought leadership or expertise for you. Because the way that it's built from my you know basic understanding is that it's trained with a model that has input from all these other content that people have created. So by nature, the only thing chat GPT can do is kind of regurgitate what other things have already said just in a different way. If the goal is to create thought leadership content to position yourself as a thought leader, if you are a thought leader, right, you've been running this business for 20 years, you have deep expertise, all of these things, then Chant GPT will not, I think for a long time, will be able to take that away from you. What it might, I think one, the commoditized writers, it would take out of business. Like there's a lot of SEO blog content writers who, I don't know how many SEO agencies there are who have a blog post that's titled, what is SEO? Usually this is written by, you know, some content writer, some marketing hire brought in and they don't know the depth of technical SEO and how it actually works and how it fits into a business context and how it drives business results. So what they do is they Google, what is SEO? And then they read five blog posts. And then based on those five blog posts, they just kind of create a Frankenstein type of blog post in their own little version. The writers who are doing that type of work are really in trouble. I think people who are deep experts in their in their field are not in trouble. I think it can streamline that process. So Saurabh tried that out, telling ChatGPT, write a LinkedIn post. The input is the transcript of the conversation. So as an input, you still have the real human expertise coming from a real subject matter expert in their field. And then ChatGPT can help format that and kind of cut it out and, and do all that. And then I think the, the purpose of the copywriters will be more of an editorial role where you then take that raw output from ChatGPT and then you still need to go over it, read through it, make sure that it's cohesive, add some things, take some things out, right? Put that human touch into it and to operate these systems, right? Because someone still needs to tell ChatGPT what to do. And I think where a lot of the value will be created, and again, this is my like naive amateur point of view, is it really depends on what you tell ChatGPT, right? You can, for example, say, what is the difference between SEO and SEM? I don't know. Example. That's the question you give ChatGPT. And then it gives you whatever output it gives you. Or you could say, write a LinkedIn post targeted towards CFOs at Fortune 500 companies looking to get into SEO and explain the difference between SEO and SEM relative to their business objectives. That's the input you give ChatGPT and the output will be very different. That might be the task of really strategizing around what input am I giving the system. Chapter seven to five reasons why video is superior. Obviously we create a lot of videos for ourselves and for customers and we do get the question whether we're a video provider or a video agency. And uh, no, we're not. You know, we consider ourselves the marketing agencies. We don't particularly care about video. I don't particularly care about video, but I believe it's the most effective way. It's the most effective medium to get your marketing message out. And I actually thought about this a little bit and I wrote down the five reasons why I believe video is the superior medium to use to get your marketing messages out. Number one, easier to stand out. If you look at just how many companies already have a blog post, 
or how many people are already posting text and image posts on LinkedIn, it's much easier to stand out with video because it's harder to have a consistent ongoing video play going. And so a lot of marketing is just about standing out. That's just number one. That will change over time probably, right? As more people realize this and more people start producing videos, that might shift over time. But for now, it's still very few have a video play. Number two, it's easier to build trust. And this is something that I believe will never change. That's something why I am very bullish on video in general, because fundamentally, the way that we evaluate whether someone is trustworthy is by listening to them talk, hearing what they say, but then more than that, listening to their tonality and seeing their body language. And so video is the only medium through which you can communicate all of these things, right? So especially when we're talking a B2B environment where we need to build a lot of trust with our prospects, with the decision makers that we're selling to, anything that allows you to build that trust faster is helpful. That is something that will never change. That is also the reason, by the way, why when you have a sales call with someone over Zoom, do you turn on your camera or do you not? You know, of course you turn on your camera. Um, and we know that there's a different feeling if you're on a sales call and the person on the other side does not have their camera turned on, it feels off, right? Like we can still hear everything that they're saying. It may, might make total sense, the words that they're choosing and what they're talking about. But if we can't validate looking into their eyes, seeing their facial expression, seeing their body language, there's already a gap in trust. Right. And that's the same with text posts and image posts. You can't validate that. Videos fundamentally build more trust. Reason number three, easier to repurpose. When you have a video that you recorded, now you have the video and you can use it on all the platforms where videos, you know, are postable, whether it's LinkedIn or YouTube or TikTok. But then you can also transcribe the video. You use a tool. It takes you like two minutes, costs no money. There's a lot of free tools to transcribe video. And then you have a text that has the same thing what you talk about. And then you just need to do some minor edits and maybe restructure it a little bit and fix some mistakes that the transcription make. And suddenly you have basically a blog post or a text post. Beyond that, you can also, when you have a video, you automatically have the audio, right? So you can very easily just rip the audio from the video and you have a pure audio file. And for example, what we're currently doing with our videos, we started doing this two months ago, is to create a podcast with them. We take our best performers and highlights of every month and we put them all in together into one kind of highlight audio experience where we clip them back to back and now we have a podcast. And it's very easy because when you have a video, you automatically have the, the audio, right? It's not necessarily the same the other way around. Number four, we didn't realize it early on when we started, but now it's something that we, that we realize again and again. For most people, it's much easier to explain complex topics through video because it's the most natural way that they've been doing it. So we work with a lot of B2B companies that sell complex products, complex solutions that have a lot of moving parts and nuances and details that they want to communicate into the marketplace. For most, whether it's a founder or a C-suite or a leader, to explain these nuanced things about their company and their product, it's much easier to just talk about it for three minutes. Why? Because that's what they do all day anyway. They're all day on Zoom calls and meetings explaining these exact things 
to their team, to their colleagues, and to their prospects. So they already have a lot of basically training saying it, right? And so it's it's very straightforward to just get someone to say it to you. If you tell them to write it down, suddenly people overthink things and they try to be fancy with their words and they restructure sentences and they kind of read it over and over again and try to reformat it. And it just takes much longer. So number four is that it's easier to explain complex topics. And then five, for most people, it's easier to consume. I think there's a statistic over 60% of executives when they are asked, if you need to learn about topic X, do you prefer to watch a video about it or read a text about it? And over 60% say that they would rather watch a video about it. And I think we're at a point where most people nowadays learn through video. Me personally, when I need to learn something, when I'm figuring out how to do a specific thing, I go to YouTube. I would rather watch a 10 minute YouTube video, someone explaining it to me, than read like a, you know, long blog post. And so for most people, and again, this is not everyone, but on average, they would much rather watch a video than read a text. Now, this is obviously given that the video is just as good as the text, right? They're both well-produced, they're both concise and clear, but if they're equal and on that level, most people prefer to consume video. Now, some of these vi things will change over time, right? Easier to stand out will probably change over time as more people start adopting it and the opportunity becomes less. Easier to consume might shift. At some point, we might get video overload and people just don't want to watch videos anymore and they prefer reading again. But a lot of these things are fundamental. Building trust, repurposability, and being able to explain complex topics more easily, these are quite fundamental that will stay the same. And that's the reason why we do videos. It's not because I love videos or because we're a video agency. It's just that we realize that video is the most effective way to communicate your marketing messages, your expertise into the marketplace. Chapter eight, what I'd do if I was your new head of marketing. If I was hired as the head of marketing at a growing B2B SaaS company, 30 people, they just raised their Series A, Series B, what I would do on day one is I would go to my founder and CEO and I would convince them that I will interview them every week. I will then prepare questions for that interview around the company, around the product, around my founder's expertise, around the market and where things are heading. And then I would interview them. I record the whole interview 30 to 60 minutes once a week. And then number one, I would produce that interview into a podcast and just upload it on anchor.fm. And we have a weekly podcast. And then two, and most importantly, I would then take that recording and create bite-sized LinkedIn content out of it. Videos, text posts, image posts, based on just exactly what my founder and CEO just told me, clipping it. Um, so that I can post Monday through Friday, five times a week on my founder's LinkedIn profile. And, and I would be producing this content, writing the copy, you know, editing the video. We could all outsource some of that. And then from there, because we also want to grow our company brand um, and not just, you know, build the followers of our founder, I would then also take that content and use it in, in other places like our LinkedIn company page like a company branded YouTube channel where I would upload the videos, like a company newsletter that I would send out once a month, basically with the best performing post. And then after roughly three months, probably I would start setting up LinkedIn ads 
towards targeted account. So I would build a list of like 50 to 100 companies who are our dream customers who exactly fit our customer profile, feed them into a LinkedIn campaign, and then run only the best performing content that we posted through our founder's personal profile towards these accounts to educate them around our perspective, around our offer, around our product, around, you know, our expertise and why we're qualified to do this to really generate demand, but also build a lot of trust and credibility within the market, right? And then you can do many other things, turn them into YouTube shorts and Instagram content and use the content on the website to build SEO. But I think that those would be our highest priority. And so based on that, we now started offering that for companies you know, at Project 33, because I was like, before that, we were focusing on video and we were focusing on a smaller cadence. But I think it makes a lot of sense to post daily on LinkedIn. That's what I do for myself. And so we started offering this for customers now where we will literally interview their founder and CEO once a week. We will create five pieces of content per week for them, videos, text posts, image posts, and then also build out the framework to repurpose that content on their company YouTube channel, company LinkedIn page, newsletter, and then help run this content as LinkedIn ads to generate demand and build trust in the market um, and educate the market. Chapter nine, why we put all of our IP out there. We have all of our IP out there. When someone goes to our website, they'll find our process. They'll find exactly how we you know, come up with topics for customers, how we edit videos, how our videos look like, uh, how we write copy. We have our full copywriting guidelines on the website, which is a 40 page document we wrote, we wrote internally for our copywriters on how we write copy for customers with, you know, archetypes and anatomies of a LinkedIn post and copywriting principles. So it's all out there. You know, someone could basically literally build a marketing company from scratch, from just the processes and guidelines um, and frameworks that we have publicly on our website. There's three reasons why I don't fear that people will copy us from that. Number one, the reason why we put it out there is because it, it has only helped us so far because it builds a lot of trust and credibility with our customers and our prospects when they can see exactly what we do and how we do it and the guidelines and best practices and frameworks that we follow when we work with them publicly on our website, right? They can research, they can understand how we do things. And it, it allows them to do a lot of the research that they want to do on their own without having to talk to me or book a sales call. And two, it showcases that we really put a lot of time and effort and thought into how we do things. And that's the truth. You know, we, we spend a lot of time on building processes in building out our frameworks and building out our guidelines. And so it has only helped us in, in attracting people and in, in building trust and credibility with people. Number two, the reason why I'm not scared that you know people will copy is because even though with all of that out there, with our whole copywriting guidelines out there, with every step of the process out there, there's still so many more nuances and details that go into all the different parts that are just either there are too many that you can't put them all out there or they're just really hard to articulate because there's a lot of just expertise and experience and intuition involved still even with all of these processes that 
even with someone just seeing all of that and trying to copy exactly step by step of what we have out there, there will be still so many little parts where it's not quite clear, do you do this or do you do that? Do you write the headline in this way or in that way? Do you edit the video in this way or in that way? Cut that out or not cut that out, right? All of that, those details and nuance. And I think that's true for everyone. And then number three, we're constantly iterating on these processes. We're constantly experimenting with new things. So whatever you see on our website, that's like two versions ago. The onboarding questionnaire is already a couple iterations ahead. Our internal copywriting guidelines is already a couple versions ahead. You know, our video editing process is already a couple iterations ahead, right? Because we're constantly working on improving these processes and we can only catch up so much that we eventually update these public documents and we put it all out there. So whatever you see out there, we're already further than that. So those are the main reasons why we put all of our IP out there and why I'm not scared at all that, you know, companies or competitors might copy what we do or our processes and, and take customers away from us. Chapter 10, why we started life events. One of the biggest problems for content in general, both applies to us, that applies to every marketing team, is to figure out what to actually talk about. We can talk about our product and our feature all day, but that's not what people want to hear, right? At least not the people who might not be super familiar and already in buying mode. So it's about adding value, right? That's what people say, adding value. What does that mean? Well, it means answering the questions that your prospects, your customers, your target audience, the people that you're selling to actually have, right? What are the burning questions that they would love to have an answer to from an expert? then ideally, you are that expert who can provide that answer to that question. Same with problem, right? What problems and pain points and obstacles are they dealing with in their day-to-day -day life right now that are frustrating them? And how can you create a piece of content that solves that problem for them? Whether through a tip, through an insight, through a tool that you're recommending, through a book that you're recommending, through a podcast that you're recommending, through a strategy or process that they should try out whatever the thing is, but it's about answering questions and solving problems, right? So how do you arrive at what questions and what problems to address in your content? And the problem is that oftentimes we, as content creators or marketers, guess we sit down, we have a brainstorming sessions and we say, oh, we should talk about this thing. And oh, then we should answer this hypothetical question that people probably want to know the answer to. And then we should talk about that topic. And they're created in a vacuum, right? And then you go out and you create this content and then you realize that no one cares. You don't get any engagement. The goal is how do I get as closely as possible to figuring out what these actual questions and problems are. There's multiple ways. One of them is uh, you know, interviewing customers and literally asking them. Another one is paying attention when you're having sales calls and whatever questions your prospects ask you during that sales call, write them down. And that are your, your questions, your comments and, and replies that you get on LinkedIn when you post content, you know, what, what do people say in the comments? What are their follow-up questions? And so that is one of the reasons why we started experimenting recently with the live Q and A the last week 
I did my first live Q&A where I hosted like a little thing on Zoom and I invited people to join and that we're going to talk about B2B marketing. I prepared like a little monologue of some recent insights that we had at Project 33. And then I opened it up to questions. It was kind of scary for sure, because when you do these things, like, will people show up? <laughs> and so... um I had this debate with Jay, I actually remember I told him like, hey, like, I think it would be a good idea to try something like a live Q&A because that would help us get closer to people, add value and actually answer the questions that people actually have, not, st- not the ones that we think they have. And he's like, okay, so do it. I was like, no, but, well, I need to like figure out the format and like think about how I want to do it and like when I'm going to do it and what tool I'm going to use to stream it. And is it going to be on LinkedIn Live or Zoom or, you know, and what I'm going to talk about? And he's like, okay, how about you just do a poll on LinkedIn, ask if anyone would join. If people say yes, you do it. It's like, fair. So I did the poll. I asked people, like 30 people said yes. I was like, that's way more than I hoped. So I did, I organized the event. I think we were seven people at the end. Um, which was amazing. I think that's that's the point. And we had a great conversation. I talked about the couple of topics I prepared, and then when there were some questions by people, and we recorded the whole thing, and we'll be going to be turning it into content now. We're going to be chopping up the recording of that into into separate videos and and see how it performs. But I think the main idea is always how can I get as closely as possible to the topics that my audience actually wants me to talk about versus what I think they want me to talk about. So that's why we're experimenting with the live q and I'm going to do more of them. If you want to join, uh, I would love it um, and see whether we can somehow roll it into our, our, our offer and our process eventually. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you have any questions, any topics that you would like us to discuss on here, just send me a message on LinkedIn. And then we also now started doing our live events, our live Q&As every two weeks where we break down the leading B2B companies and how they do their marketing. We will have some marketing leaders on there for interviews and where we from Project 33 just share our current lessons. So if you're interested in that, uh, feel free to join us live every two weeks at 4 p.m. Central Eastern Time. You can find the link to sign up for that live Q&A on our website under our uh, Learning Center page. And there's a page for the live Q&A where you can register and then you also get can add it to your calendar. I'd love to see you there. It's still an experiment. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. Peace out.